Good morning. Okay, um, it is time to dismiss kids. So if you have just finished kindergarten through fifth grade, you can head out the doors to the left of the sanctuary. And parents, if you have not finished the check-in process for your kids, you can walk with them and finish that as they go on their way. Great. We'll now go to scripture reading. Um, So the passage this morning is going to be from Ezekiel 5. Ezekiel 5. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city, take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But Take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them. A fire will spread from there to all Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat children and children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Then... My anger will cease, and my wrath against them will subside, and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Thanks, Becca.
In Wisconsin, um, there's a state law from 1842 that you can only preach through the book of Ezekiel during the summer months. <laughs> so that's a seasonal defectiveness disorder joke. I hope you get that. A um, couple things. I said I was going to do some brief lessons on what we're going to take from COVID for a few weeks um, because we have a, a guest with us, Glenn, who's going to be talking about a, a ministry that is in some ways driven by the difficulties during COVID relative to um, churches in our city and their health. I want to save a little time for him, so I'm not going to do that today. I'll pick that up again next week. I also want to say one thing. I, I want to apologize for not saying anything about Memorial Day. I know some, you might think that I just don't want to do anything patriotic because our church is not that sort of church, but like, I believe that when people sacrifice themselves for the freedom and lives of others in some of the ugliest affairs of human existence, like war, that those people deserve our honor, especially if they give um, their last breath for us. And so um, I, 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 I wanted to say something from Memorial Day, and I didn't, and that was remiss on my part, my part. I think that we should honor people who give their life for us. Um, lastly, it, I feel like, I feel div, it's like a divine incumbency upon me that I embarrass um, Pastor Sisson every time he's here. And so Dick and Carol Sisson are right here. If you guys want to wave, you can. Um, Dick and Carol, yeah. Are your spiritual great-grandparents pastorly at High Point. So he's two senior pastors ago, and we had like a foster parent kind of in between two of them before I got here. And so um, whenever they're here, um, it's a blessing to see you guys. Now I'm terrified to preach. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Dick is nothing but encouragement. Um, so uh, let's, let's dive in here, shall we? Um, so um, in our country, for a number of reasons, a number of good reasons that I'm not going to get into today, we've had a lot of discussion about th things like where we use the language of privilege and how sometimes when we have privileges, sometimes that leads to responsibilities we have towards other people that we don't take into account very well. And that's—I'm not saying anything against that when I'm going to say what I'm about to say right now. But one of the things we, we don't often talk about is um, the, the, the dangers and difficulties of privileges for the people who have them. There are, because of the human condition since the fall, there are a number of ways in which whenever we have not just deprivations of any kind, but privileges of any kind, they are a danger to us in terms of character. There's a verse where um, David says, I think in the Psalms, he says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches, right? Because it's, if I'm too poor, I might steal and dishonor the name of my God. But if I'm rich, I might grow proud and say, who is the Lord that I should submit to him, right? Because David recognized that like, Man, there is only a razor-thin margin of natural faithfulness. When you feel yourself in danger enough that you really need God, but you don't really have enough that you could like grow into pride and say that you don't need God. And the, the fact is, is that virtually nobody lives on that razor's edge. All of us are tempted either by poverty or riches. And for a lot of us who live in 2021 in the United States, it is, even among our poorest, it is still probably more the arrogance of riches than the despair of poverty. One of the things that's interesting about fortunes is that in the United States, a study was done about them, and for people who come into fortunes, or who, particularly who make fortunes, those are gone in three generations at a rate of 90%. 90% of fortunes made in America are gone in three generations. Think of that. Nine out of ten. There was this—listen, I, I, I spend less than one millionth of my time defending the, late, the old President Donald Trump, but there was, there was this—remember when he was running for president, and people were like, you've been nothing but a privileged guy your whole life, and, some, and somebody said—and he, he said— Famously, you know, honestly, 
the only thing I ever got from my dad was a small loan of $4 million. You remember that? <laughs> a small loan of $4 million. And people made fun of that, right? And, and like, rightly so, right? A small loan of $4 million, right? But at the same time, like, his dad had a fortune. And the loan was for a business venture that if it went south, he lost everything. And so he didn't hand his son a fortune. He, he handed his son an opportunity, right? It was the same thing most of us want to do for our kids. I mean, I, I'll just tell my daughter right now, my gift to you will have fewer zeros, maybe only two. Um, but like, <laughs> I would love to give my kids an opportunity without giving them a fortune because I want them to have to work for whatever they make in life. And because if you just give people too much privilege, it is extraordinarily dangerous. Some of us, it's been the biggest struggle we've had in raising our children. It's not like the deprivations and the blah, 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 but it's like, we want to give them everything. We want to give, I mean, they have their own rooms. They have like clothes and food and stuff like that. And, and we're just getting love and friends and we're surrounded by like functional people. We go to church and there's lights and air conditioning and like, and, and like, what do they have to live for? What do they have to do? What is the great battle of their lives? Is it any wonder why so many people, so many ki- younger people have been like taken over with political worship? Like, what is the great struggle of their lives? It's not their own life. And why are we so inside our heads? Because that is the greatest storm of our existence for most of us. Right? Isn't it funny that suicide rates are virtually all in the positive in industrialized countries and almost non-existent in the poorest countries of the world? Why is that? It's like you have to have time on your hands to be depressed enough to kill yourself. Right? So— and listen, what I say is, I am not making, making light of human deprivation. I'm not making light of, of poverty and hurt. That's just a different subject that isn't the main subject of this, because the people of Israel in the book of Ezekiel are being torn apart, not because they had so little that they couldn't climb to spiritual prosperity, but because God had given them so much. That's why. One of the principles that we have to take from this. And we got to be careful about taking principles from this because God literally says to these people, I'm going to do you something I have never done before and I will never do again. There's a sense in which this is a very special moment. It is the low point. The low point. And so I don't, you, I can't just take this and be like, everything that's true in this passage is true of you right now. Because that's not really true. So what we have to figure out is like, what's the principle, right? And one of the principles of privilege is this. Privilege that doesn't make you better makes you worse. Privilege that doesn't make you better makes you worse. That's true of like every kind of privilege. That's true like financially, right? And, and like socioeconomically, it's, that's true. It's true like if you have two parents in your home, we can go through all the like social science department stuff, right? But it's also true of like the truth, right? Like the Word of God inscripturated, revealing the incarnate man, Jesus Christ, where he could say to one of his disciples, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? That's, that's an enormous amount of truth. It's way more truth than the people of Ezekiel had. And yet, one of the things God is arguing in this passage is that one of the privileges that they squandered, because it didn't make them better, it made them worse, was the privilege of truth. Right? It's also true of heritage. Right? Like, I, my parents were not believers. My, both my parents were agnostics. And um, there are things that my kids have gotten from my wife and I, because we're believers, that I couldn't get from my parents. I get a lot of great things from my parents. But spiritual formation and discipleship and being taught the gospel from a very young age so that it was functioning in the very depths and bowels of my personal psychology as I grew as a tender person was not one of them. Right? 
my kids have a heritage that I didn't have, right? Which is both a privilege, but it's also a danger, right? I mean, think about how many Christian kids turn away from the faith, how many Christian kids don't pay attention at church. And, and that which is in front of us, which is given to us, which is offered to us, which we have all around us that we don't recognize, and we don't utilize, and we don't take hold of, and we don't improve upon, as the Puritans would have said. You take something that's given to you, and you improve upon it. You utilize it. It makes you worse, not better. Right? Like if you come to church and you hear the message of the gospel over and over and over again, and you have Christian teaching available, and you have people ready to spiritually guide you, and it doesn't do anything, like you don't, you don't utilize it, it won't just not make you better. It will make you worse. Right? Sorry. And that's true of commandments. So remember, right, he says, my people, I gave them the commandments. Like I gave them, I told them what to do that would lead to life and justice and beauty, and they just refused them. And the same thing with kindness, right? For 390 years, it says in chapter 4, the people had inflicted their sin. They had goaded, attacked, abused God's favor over them, his glory. They'd abused it. They just attacked it. And God had been kind to them. And you know what that kindness had done? All God's kindness from them, you know how much difference it made in their lives? Well, it, it made them worse because it didn't make them better because they didn't hear it, because they didn't listen, because they wouldn't receive kindness, and they received it instead as weakness, or, or that God wasn't even there. Because if God was there, he would have punished us, and he didn't. So maybe he's not even there. He doesn't even care. So maybe we can just do whatever we want. Maybe none of this matters. Maybe we can walk all over God and still expect him to help us when we're in trouble. We can do whatever we want when we're not, right? Because it didn't make them better, it made them worse. Right? You need to understand that if the fundamental reality of the human condition under the fall is that we have become the sort of creatures that for every gift given us, every grace, every privilege, every kindness that we receive is a danger as well as a blessing. Because if it doesn't affect us, if we don't improve upon it, if we don't receive it by faith and repent of that which contradicts it, whatever doesn't make us better makes us worse. That's how damnation and salvation work. A more biblically language way to say this is this, that when we squander spiritual kindness, it leads to hardness. Right? The theme that goes all through the book of Ezekiel and all through the Bible is hardness. Hardness of heart. People hardened their hearts. What does that mean? What it means is, is that when a grace or a kindness comes to you, some privilege enters your life or is in your life, and you don't receive it with humility, then what are you by definition doing? Right? You're, you're not receiving it with pride. And pride always takes its revenge. And what it does is it closes us off to the conscientious sensitivity to the moral and beauty components of whatever privilege is given us. When God is kind to us, if we had humility, we would see that as both good and beautiful, right? Both morally upright and pleasant, and the effect on us would be happiness and joy and responsiveness. And if we don't do that, by definition, what we must do alternatively is to reject it because it's flowing into us. So either we receive it or we push it off. And when we push it off, we are evoking pride. And when we evoke pride, we are always hardening ourselves. Always. And what Scripture teaches is that this is a process by which we grow increasingly hardened. And we are not damned or hurt or lost well, maybe lost, but not damaged as fast as we are hardened. We can be living a life that we find perfectly pleasant, 
that we like the way it's going, that people think that we're a fantastic person, maybe even a deeply religious, pious, spiritual person. And at the same time, in our hearts, because of our response to these different privileges and kindnesses, we can be growing increasingly hardened. And ultimately, that's what damnation is, friends. It is hardening unto forever. So that nothing good can come in, nothing can be enjoyed, no relationship can find a root in us. We are alone, only ourselves, and there is nothing left. Nothing but stone. One of the curious things about this passage is that God says about his people, and he doesn't say this very often, but he says about his people that they're actually worse than the people who are pagans around them. Not only that they behave worse, which is kind of weird, but that like the pagan nations around them have moral standards, right? Because nobody likes chaos, even if you're a sinner. And even if you don't even know who God is, you're going to come up with moral standards. Like every, every society that's ever existed in the world has always had rules and laws and standards. Because everybody might want to be totally free themselves, but they're still afraid of what their neighbor will do. So you got to have some rules, right? And so everybody has moral standards. And like God's like, listen, Israel, like you could go into the Philistines. Like literally, we use the word Philistine today to mean people with no rules. <laughs> <laughs> like, that guy's a Philistine. You know what that means? Some of you are too young to have ever heard that word. It means, like, they, like, have no propriety. They have no idea what a civilized person is. They're a Philistine, right? He's like, basically, listen, the Philistines are better than you. Like, you don't even live up to the, the Philistines' rules. You don't even live up to yourself. Like, you, much less, like, even doing one of my commandments. How does that happen? How does a person, how does a group of people with all of these benefits, all of these possibilities, all of these gifts, how does somebody with all of these privileges become worse than people who had none of them. We better, we better know. We better know. Because we want to do the opposite. This is like success by doing the opposite, right? We want to do the opposite. What's the opposite, right? God says about them, Yet her wickedness, that is Jerusalem, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and not followed my decrees. Right? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, you have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Right? What he's referring to, what he'll refer to all through the book of, of Ezekiel, and what you'll see throughout the scriptures once you have eyes to see it, is this constant focus on hardness of heart, hardening one's heart, right? That is the basis of how benefits that come to us, if we don't improve upon them or receive them, make us worse. So for example, in the book of Hebrews, it says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As it's just been said today, now he's quoting Psalm, I think it's Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt, right? So what he's saying is, don't you see, all the people who died in the desert were believers. Do you get it? They're all believers. They're not pagans. They're not unbelievers. They're not unreligious, right? They're all the people who followed the God-Savior figure through the split Red Sea, out of the land of slavery, and into the land of freedom. They're all believers. Do you understand? He's like, and these are all the ones who died in the desert. Why did they die in the desert? He said, it's because they heard, but instead of hearing and receiving, they heard and rebelled. Right? Pride, executing a rebelliousness of spirit, 
allows you to hear. That is, the privilege comes to you, the privilege of truth in this case, right? Or command comes to you, and pride says, nope. And when that happens, what he's saying is, there's an action that happens in the pushing away of the heart hardens. I'm not going to receive this. I don't have to receive this. Why? Because every privilege is a compliment to you. Do you understand? Like every time your parent did something for you, like especially like, like American kids, right? Your, kid, your parents do all this stuff for you, right? So you, you must be really important, right? You must be a real somebody. Like your parents threaten you all the time, they never do anything about it. Like you must be a prince or a queen. That you, that you can like do all the stuff your parents say not to do, do whatever you want, use up their resources, live in their house, eat their food, and then, and then not even do what they say. Right? You see, like every time privileges come to us, we think we're important. We don't think of ourselves as beggars who receive from the kindness of God. We think of ourselves as like, like this must mean I'm a big deal, right? It goes right to our heads. It fills us with pride. It hardens our heart. And then when that one speaks to us and says, hey, we go, Nope, I don't have to receive this because I'm a capital S somebody, right? But the people who came out of Egypt, the people who lived in Israel, they're hardened. Proverbs says, he who conceals his sins does not, does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. You see the parallels in there? There's the one who fears the Lord. That is— I mean, a lot of people don't like that phrase. That's just the state of humility. You know who God is, and you know who you are. And it puts you in a state of humility. You're ready to receive from him. The opposite, poetically, is the one who hardens his heart. That is like, I don't have to listen to this. Why should I have to listen to this? I'm a somebody. Right? And that person falls into trouble because that which doesn't make him better makes him worse. Right? So let's go through a couple of these quickly. First is— um, how, so how do privileges make us worse if they don't make us better? And the one thing is, is that privileges imply accountability. They imply accountability, right? The main privileges being discussed in this passage are the privileges of knowledge and authority or responsibility, right? So why is God so upset? Why does this bother him so much? And one of the answers, and we'll get back to this when we, we look at the whoredom or adultery theme in chapter 16. It's the same argument made in a different way. It bothers them because they had every knowledge of not doing this. Like, he had told them everything about this. That how blessings and cursings come about. He told them what was right and what was wrong. He told them their purpose, what they were for. He had redeemed them out of slavery that they had fallen into. Like, he had given them every possible advantage. He'd actually fought for them in battles. Literally, completely won battles on their behalf and their heritage. He did all these things for them, right? And the whole point was simple. That he had told them the truth. And he had made them a people among the nations. Right? Like, there, there were a number of people that said, like, the Bible was wrong because this passage assumes that Israel has to be literally in the middle of the planet, which assumes a flat earth. And, like, since the earth is a globe, there's literally no middle, so the Bible's wrong. That's not what it means at all. Israel is where three continents come together. It's where the, the greatest empires of the ancient world all met. Right? Greece and Rome, Babylon and Syria, Egypt and and the lower Nile, all these places, where do they all meet? If you drew a line from their capital cities to where their armies would meet, it's Israel. It's literally this tiny strip of land in the middle of all the great nations and peoples. It's in the midst of them. And God wanted a people who could not control all these great peoples, but who could be a city on a hill to all of them. They all could have looked to this tiny nation and seen a place that God blessed and strengthened, and they would have known the truth. That is, Israel had an incredible responsibility. You see, all the privileges that you and I have, they come with responsibilities. 
And if you don't feel those responsibilities acutely, they'll never affect the kind of humility necessary to walk in them with any kind of integrity. One of the, one, some of the rituals I have about being a pastor are to constantly remember that I am a servant, that this is a privilege, that I will face God with greater accountability, that my job, like that my, right, that I, that shepherds are not like white collar workers. They're like, they're the bottom of the working class, right? Like this is what I am. And I have to keep reminding myself of these things. Because why? Because I have some authority, I have responsibility, and I have privileges of knowledge. Like I got to go to grad school. I've been in college for seven years, and I'm still not a doctor. But I learned a lot of stuff. Why did I get to do all that? Was it just because like I had the money, I wanted to do it. So like, and I worked really hard. I did work really hard, right? And my mommy paid for a bunch of it, right? And like I worked for church to give me like, it, like it doesn't matter that I worked. I, I mean, I, we wouldn't be here if we didn't work this hard, right? But that doesn't change my responsibility one iota. I'm a shepherd, right? You're a parent. You're a friend. You're a citizen. You're a neighbor. All of those realities are graces that imply responsibilities. And the more emotionally connected you stay to the responsibilities that come from that knowledge, from that place, from that calling, from that stewardship, the more possibility there is for you to exert the kind of faith where you can have the fear of the Lord and receive his truth and receive it humbly as opposed to having the hardness of pride that casts it off and says that you're a somebody. Right? It's a dangerous, terrible thing, but it's actually very simple to avoid. It's not easy to avoid, not easy at all, but it's very simple to avoid. Pride is always your greatest enemy and humility always your greatest friend. In terms of your personality and your personhood. Jesus said it this way, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. There's a proportionality to how God counts guilt and the way he sees that because he sees knowledge, responsibility, authority, those things as privileges, right? And if they don't make us better, they make us more guilty. The second is truth and kindness that doesn't make us better makes us worse, okay? So, so the question is, I've already said that like nine times, right? So the question that I think we need to look at is like, well, why is that true and how does that happen, right? And you see, some of you have heard from like, like fairly tender ages that that's just like a bad thing about religion. Religion just makes people bad, right? And like you've got the new atheists and you've got people writing books and blogs and stuff and professors yelling it and stuff like that. And it's, 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 it's incredible how intellectually immature a thought that is, how foolish it is, and how historically illiterate it is. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, does religion make some people bad? And the answer is, of course, yes, right? And, but also, religions, even untrue religions, do some of them make people good? a lot better than they would have been otherwise had they not believed it, right? And I have atheists always been wonderful people? Um, no. They have killed more people than any other group in the world, probably combined. However, we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. They had much better instruments of killing technologically, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, like Christians and Muslims when we were all fighting and stuff and killing people. Like if we had had tanks and machine guns and gas chambers, we might have done just as well, right? So the, the point is, is that brutality hardness, hatred, the willingness to use our privilege to dominate and destroy others is a human characteristic, not a religious characteristic. It attends to all ideologies, 
all racial groups, all periods of time, all socioeconomic classes, all education levels, all, 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 all. It's fundamentally um, the myth of religious violence by Kavanaugh. If you're an intellectual person, you need to read a whole book on it to be convinced about that. The, the point is, is that we are all prone to it, and religion or ideologies of all kinds will affect us on the basis of how we use them. You can pick and hunt your way through Christian faith and through the Bible and use it as a mechanism to think that you're better than everybody else. It happens all the time. It's called legalism. Right? I mean, people do that. Like, I do all these rules. Christianity makes me good. I'm a good person. You're a bad person. Like, of course that happens. Right? Or people who like the ther- believe the therapeutic gospel that because Jesus died for my sins, it doesn't matter if I sin or do whatever. I'll be a terrible, selfish, horrible person. But I'm generally religious. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. I must be a fairly good person. And God loves me, so I'm a somebody. Right? And everybody hates that person. Why? Because they're terrible. And that's not the gospel. And it, like these people, makes God look bad to the nations. Both legalism and therapeuticism, whatever you want to call it, make God look terrible to the nations. Whether it's our self-centered, self-selecting moral seriousness by which we believe we're better than each other, or it is our nothing I do matters, my God must not be morally serious in a world full of moral conundrums and problems for which I make no sacrifices, do no good, and change not at all because God loves me. Right? Both of those profane the name of God among the nations where we have been put among their midst. And you're like, well, Nick, we're not Israel. No. No, we are in exile, scattered as believers, as a minority among all the nations of people of the earth. Which means we have always been as the church God's dispersed peoples, exiled peoples, therefore always in the midst of the nations, either displaying the glory of God to all those around us or profaning the glory of God to all those around us. So we better understand humanly how this happens because we may not get to the point where God will punish us like he has never done before and never done again. But we are the same kinds of humans as that got there over a 390-year period, right? Our country's not 400 years old yet. We could get there. Just give us a couple more generations, right? Look at the church right now in America. Where do you think it's going to be at 400 years old? Right? Are we doing any better? We have the Spirit. We have the Gospel. We have the risen Christ. Let's not be too judgy, right? Let's be humble enough to say, wait a second, we have all these privileges, more than them. God has set us in a place of prosperity. He's given us a thousand privileges. Hardness of heart happens to people who think that it could never happen to them. What does it take for me, right? And I think we need to understand how it happens. One is, is that privilege naturally leads to pride. Christians are not near—I don't think we're nearly focused enough or concerned enough about pride and humility. Do you understand that faith— we talk about faith all the time. What is, what is that? Right? In the, New, in the Old Testament, the language of faith is very different than the New Testament. They talk about the fear of the Lord. It's a, it's a disposition. Right? Faith in the Old Testament is the fear of the Lord. That is, you know God exists, you know what He is, you know what you are, and you're rightly oriented. That's what fear of the Lord means. Like, your, your whole internal life is ordered by the fact that you know who God is, you know who you are. That's faith. In the New Testament, we call it faith. And then we just willfully misunderstand it. But faith essentially means what? It ultimately means humility towards God. That's what it means. It means you know who God is. You know who you are. You have a a valid view of yourself, a valid view of God, a valid view of what God has done, a valid view of what you have not done, a valid view of the kindness shown to you, a a valued desire to respond to it rightly, which is joy and thankfulness and hope and, and trusting and pursuit. That's faith. And it's rooted. It is almost synonymous with humility. 
right? And what is, what is non-faith? It's, it's, it's a hardened heart. It's, it's pride towards God. It's to reject the right orientation between us and him and to think that we are the capital S somebody, right? And the effect of that pride is always that pride suppresses the truth and magnifies the self because human beings will always interpret themselves as the white-headed cowboy in the Western of their lives. We are always going to believe that we're good people. We're always going to believe that we're doing something right. Even people who are intentionally bad people have an argument for why they're a good person. I mean, just do a little prison ministry if you don't, don't believe that. Everybody interprets themselves as the good guy. Even if it's like they just like sort of facilely accept that they were a bad guy at one point and that makes them the good guy now. Or they'll be like, you know, yeah, I do some bad stuff, but like all those goody two-shoes people, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And like they're not, they don't even know the goody two-shoes people, but like they're so sure that the hypocrisy of the good people is worse than they're like doing whatever they want, hurting whoever they want. And so therefore I'm better than them, therefore I'm good. Like everybody has this little cooked up way. They think they're fantastic, right? Which you better get God's way or the, or the way that we're going to have is always going to be a delusion. It's always going to be a suppression of the truth as Romans 1 through 2 argues. And what that's going to lead to is, why, why do we have to so suppress the truth? And it's so to, as to make a place for ourselves, for this magnified self. So we become delusion about, delusional about ourselves as we grow, and therefore we have to become delusional about everything else as it shrinks and reorders it to fit in the story we tell about ourselves. And as we do that, and we reject reality and humility, our heart hardens. We become more emotionally committed to the lie we tell ourselves to the story we tell ourselves, so that anyone who contradicts us, we shut them out. We shut them up. We push them off. We tell them, you don't understand. How can you judge me? You don't know my experiences. You're not in my group politically. Right? Which leads to, right, the magnified self and suppression of truth increases our delusion and increases our insensitivity and our sensitivity. Right? The more delusional we become and the more the self grows, the more sensitive I am about myself and insensitive I am about you. So I could do incredibly insensitive things to you, but if you do anything to me, like I immediately clutch my pearls and faint on my fainting couch. <laughs> Have you met anybody like that? Are you somebody like that? Like, does this sound familiar culturally to us? Is it particularly racially divided or economically divided or, or um, generationally divided? Or are we all a bunch of spoiled brats? Right? And then that delusion and sensitivity insensitivity leads to the other vices of pride. Uh, George MacDonald in The Wise Woman calls these the hungry maggots of the heart. Right? Vanity. Obstinacy flaring up anger, prideful stonewalling, immediate defensiveness. Like, you can just go on and on. Snideness, contempt of others. Like, all of these hungry maggots are just in your, like, just putting up their legs, just devouring your heart. Eating out your humanity. Right? And the fly of pride just keeps laying more little eggs in your heart. Just laying eggs so more maggots can grow. Just devour up your humanity. And you go, I'm a somebody. Yeah, I just winked at you. Brandon, Brandon Ellis. I wasn't your wife. It was you, Brandon. I just saw the shine off your head. That's all I can see with the lights. Okay. 
That's why Jesus says in his first words of ministry in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. What is the only remedy for human hardness? What is the only remedy for this? And it is our humiliation. That's it. All right? We don't like that word. We don't like the word humiliation. What does humiliation mean? It means taking an action against the arrogant and prideful, somebody who is a somebody, so as to shock them in their pride, such as to restore a sense of proportion of who they really are, so that they can again come into the state of reasonable humility, see the truth, and be helped and healed by it. Right? We think of it as a negative action of destructiveness towards other people, that we hurt them unto harm, and so as in most cases to harden them further. But the real reason we get hardened further when people confront us and humiliate us is because we're so full of pride, we reject it and harden ourselves further and grasp our pearls and faint on our fainting couches because of our sensitivity towards ourselves and our insensitivity towards others because of the delusion we must protect. Because that which hasn't made us better has already made us worse. So that everything in addition given to make us better, we push away and become even worse. And the maggots, they feed. And the only aversion of this path is to repent and believe the gospel. And what's important to recognize too is simply this, that when someone is in this state, you, you can't reason with them. What are the three ways you can try to change somebody? You can try to reason with them. You can try to sh show them kindness. And you can punch them in the face. It's about it. Most everything we do with other people is one version of those three. You can reason with them. You can give them wisdom. You can teach them the truth. You can help them. Tell them something they don't know, right? You can give them kindness and coax them. Or you can punch them in the face and humiliate them and hope that that shocks them back into something. Well, here's the problem. As pride increases and obstinacy increases with it, we create a false sense of reality. We make the big somebody. We become insensitive and sensitive, and all this happens, right? What happens to the first two things and their effectiveness in, in helping us, right? When we won't listen to wisdom, and we look at kindness as weakness and stupidity, and we look at it with scorn. What's left? You understand? Like, do you believe that the kind can be severe? Do you believe that someone whose nature it is and whose character it is to be kind, do you believe that such a person, such a being can be severe? Do you think they can be terribly severe? Do you think that it might be kind and loving in certain circumstances to be incredibly severe and be kind? You see, if you don't, if you don't have the capacity to say yes to that, you can't and am, never can be a Christian or believe in the God of the Scriptures. There's just too many Scriptures you have to explain away. There's too many passages that are going to annoy the heck out of you. There's too many things you just can't deal with, you can't handle, you can't even look at. Right? God puts forward in so many occasions this fundamental idea that in the state of pride, the only thing that will be, bring the saving work of humility is humiliation. So much so with these folks, that the punch in the face would have to be hard enough for fathers to eat their children 
and children to eat their parents, the famine of the siege by which they would live under would be so terrible. Three quarters or more of the people would have to die. They'd have to, they'd have to be stepping over corpses. They'd have to look at people rotting in the streets in front of them. They'd have to be dragged off from everything they've ever loved, everything they'd ever called home, hundreds of miles to a place where people didn't even speak their language, to be stuck wherever they got stuck, and to live there for two generations. So that one generation would completely die out, and the children of the generation of the few people who survived might at that point be somewhere in the state of humility that they could hear the truth and be God's people. I want you to think about that. If you can't accept that, you can't be a Christian. I mean, I don't mean exactly the way I'm putting it, but the Bible says things like that too many times for you to think that you can know the God of the Bible. I know that. If, and once you understand that the God of the Scriptures can be utterly kind and supremely severe, it will put you in a very special state, the Old Testament called, the fear of the Lord, also known as humility, also known as repentance and faith, which is the only thing that can save the human soul from its real disease, which is pride, rebellion against the Lord who made us and to whom we belong. And then you need to realize that God has only ever been as minimally severe as he must be not just to punish, but to change. Because in Christ, he took all of the punishment that wasn't the severity of change on himself. So that there will be severity that is damning for those who will not be saved, but all of the severity deserved by those who will be humiliated, turned to faith, who will receive the fear of the Lord and be healed, all of the punishment is put on Christ. And only the severity needed to break our flint foreheads are we punched with. So the question is two things. One, how hard do you need to be punched? And two, how beautiful is the kindness of God? Father, we, uh, we pray that you would use these truths of ancient peoples that are your own to turn us to the truth about who you are in us today. God, please help us to see the truth, to be moved by it. Help us to be humiliated by the severity of the story of how you had to inflict suffering on your own people for their good and help us to feel the severity of it. Help it to penetrate us by the supernatural working of your spirit so that our privileges wouldn't make us worse, but that we would in faith receive them and prove upon them in faith and follow you in faith so that we could pass on those privileges to others for their good so we can live out the words of Christ freely you've received, so freely give that there would be an abundance of beauty in us in the seeds you have planted, rather than an abundance of the maggots of pride devouring us as it has planted. We pray that in Christ you would make the stone hearts flesh again. We await to preach on and listen to your promises in chapter 11 and 16 about just that. But now receive our song and our care for your church in Jesus' name.